Hi, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Andrew Feldman. Andrew is the co-founder and CEO of Cerebrus Systems, an AI accelerator company that has built the largest processor in the industry. Andrew previously co-founded and served as CEO of C-Micro, which was acquired by AMD in 2012. He has also served in executive positions at Force 10 Networks and Riverstone Networks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew We touched on topics not just about Cerebrus, but also about Andrew's perspectives on the accelerator industry as a whole, as well as a bit of a throwback to some things I discussed with Sarah Hooker in a previous episode about MLPerf and the hardware lottery. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Andrew Feldman. So, Andrew, as the CEO of Cerebrus, I noticed you have a pretty interesting background that you did economics and political science kind of early on. So I'm very curious how that morphed into your interest in AI and eventually the landscape of AI accelerators? Uh, it, it was serendipity uh, that, that set, set me off on, a, on an interesting trajectory. Uh, while in business school, I, I had some classmates who wanted to start a, a company and uh, I ended up w- working with them and, and helping them and uh, we started a company in in the the data networking industry. It was ninety six, ninety seven, and uh, it was a hardware company. We we built switches and routers in a first generation of uh, high performance IP and Ethernet switches and routers. I, ironically, a switch was a, an interesting application of a of a hobby of my father's which is he's a mathematician and it's a queuing theory problem and so we discussed the solutions to different queuing theory problems over lunch and dinner my whole life growing up and so i stumbled into a a a field that that is just an applied queuing theory problem and so i understood the the math i couldn't do any of the engineering but of course i i understood fundamentally what a switch was and uh, that, that sort of earned me some modest respect from the engineers. Uh, <laughs> that I, I understood uh, sort of the, the math underpinning arbitrating a queue or the various techniques used to, to manage the various queues in a switch. That company did really well. We, we, we were among the first to, uh, to build high-speed switches and routers. We, we sold it. A year and a half later, for just under three hundred million dollars, uh, in fact, some of the, the people who were with me there are still with me today. Um, and that sort of kicked off a, a, a career in building hardware. I 
for the next 10 or 12 years, I, I built big, fast switches and routers. First at a company called Riverstone, where we took that public in 2000, where we built micro Ethernet switches. And then at a company called Force 10, where we built big data center switches. Some of the first big clusters at Google used switches uh, that I was responsible for. And then they, they were sold to Dell in 2008. Uh, by about 2007, I was a little bored with building switches. And, and I, my view was that that, that landscape had matured, that in the mid-90s, it was the Wild West. And that's a great place for startups. But, but by 2006, 2007, they'd be in a consolidation. There used to be 20 or 30 companies. And, and then there was just Cisco and Juniper and, and Arista. And so I sort of felt it was a solved problem and uh, began looking for uh, a different problem. And, you know, I'm not a technical visionary, but I engage closely with customers and what, what was of interest to the largest customers in 2007, 2008 was power in the data center and how compute was consuming vast amounts of power. And so I started a company with Gary Lauterbach, who's also the founder of Cerebrus and Anil Rao called C-Micro. And we built the most energy efficient server ever built, started a new category called microservers. We sold that company to AMD in 2012, and uh, I was with AMD for several years and took some time off, and then we got the band back together again. Uh, many of the guys who'd been with us at, uh, at C-Micro, uh, we started meeting, and you know, uh, as computer architects do, we, we, we say, you know, is there a new workload? Uh, could we build a better, better machine for it? Uh, how could we use what we're good at, which is uh, chip design, low-level software, compilers? How could we use that to accelerate something new? And we, one day, our CTO, Gary, just leaned back and said, uh, why would a graphics processing unit, which had been tuned for 20 years to work on graphics, why would it be good at AI work? We're like, whoa, that's a... That's right. He said, wouldn't it be serendipitous? And nobody uses the word serendipitous, but Gary. And so he said, wouldn't it be serendipitous if all that tuning made it well-suited for a different workload? And that sort of opened up our, our eyes. And we began, this is sort of October 2015. We looked at the architecture of the GPU. We dug into what the underlying work in compiled AI demands of the machine. You know, what's hard about it? I mean, it's mostly doing multiply accumulate, right? It's mostly doing sparse linear algebra. Why is this a hard problem? It's a hard problem because it wants to do a lot of it, but also because it communicates extraordinarily frequently. And the workload we saw very quickly, the matrix multiplies would be too big for a given GPU. And then they would have to be spread over multiple GPUs. And so the communication would be extremely important. And we saw that the memory architecture on GPUs were profoundly misaligned with this work. And so we came to the conclusion that we could build a much faster machine. And we did that by going out and raising money. We've now raised nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. Uh, we built the, the largest chip ever. You know, our chip is the size of a dinner plate, whereas a graphics processing unit's smaller than a postage stamp. And we did that 
to solve the very sort of problems we saw at the beginning is how to put memory closer to compute and how to communicate more quickly. You know, NVIDIA saw these two problems as well. They spent $7 billion buying a networking company because <laughs> uh, they knew communication was important as well. But they still build clusters by putting together lots of little tiny chips and tying them together, and that's complicated. And it requires sort of extraordinary distributed compute expertise to put one problem over 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 graphics processing units. And what's hard, interestingly, about big NLP isn't AI. It isn't the NLP. It's getting it over the compute. <laughs> isn't that ironic that, that, we, that what is limiting the distribution and the spread and the dem democratization of big AI isn't the AI? It's that it is so darn hard with graphics processing units to spread over thousands of GPUs or hundreds of GPUs. So that was a maybe a little longer answer than you thought. Uh, <laughs> maybe usual the answer was just luck. But uh, there, that, that was sort of how I, I ended up in, uh, in AI, is through collaboration with extraordinary founders, uh, through an interest in what is top of mind for customers, what are the hardest problems customers have through the love of building hardware. That's a great story, and it is interesting just to see the different sorts of perspectives we are needing in terms of developing AI today. So we pointed out that this model parallelism issue we start to see with these massive NLP models, it's basically becoming a distributed systems problem right. because of the nature of our hardware. That's exactly right. And it's, you say, what, why are some of this work being done at supercompute sites and at non-traditional sites? It's because they have distributed compute expertise, mm -hmm. right? It's, if you look at, we, we built a, a really fun graph and I'll, I'll send it to you of what are the various techniques used in the published work to train the largest models? And once you get to about a billion parameters, everybody's running data parallel. And then, bang, you run into model parallel. And it hits you like a buzzsaw. And you start running pipeline model parallel. And then you start running tensor model parallel. And even the groups, you can only get eight in a tensor model parallel group. They're running 4,000 GPUs. And the biggest group they can get their head around to run tensor model parallel is eight. And that's why just... Just getting one of these networks to train is a publication, <laughs> right? I mean, how silly is that? If you step back, th this ought to be as easy as selling chicken dinners, right? It ought to be, you know, you want to run a 20 billion, a 30 billion, an 80 billion parameter model, 175 billion. If you have six or eight million for infrastructure, it ought to be easy as can be. It ought not to take months. It ought not to need, if you read what a Luther did, I mean, they had, academics from around the world <laughs> working on it for months. I mean, th that's, if that's what it takes, there are only a handful of places on earth that will ever do it. And that's bad for our industry. Yeah. To, to what you said about the fact that just the massive engineering expertise required to make one of these models work results in a publication. I mean, we are seeing that. We've seen methods like G-Pipe, like Pipemare, 
We've seen Alba come out of Google, all of these different things. And they're very interesting problems. But to what you said, it would be nice if we didn't really have them at all. They are really difficult. You know, our technology, we always run strictly data parallel. The largest layer, the largest matrix multiply in the largest layer of GPT-3 is about 10 or 15,000 by 10 or 15,000. We can fit models hundreds of layers, hundreds of times faster than that and larger. So we always run data parallel. That means if you want to, we're going to run the same configuration on 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 192 nodes. And with a single keystroke, you can distribute over 10 million, 50 million, 100 million cores. Right. And that takes away that absurd complexity that you just described. Yeah. Let's spend some time lingering on what you all are building, and then we can maybe expand out a little bit to talk about the larger accelerator landscape. Sure. Your approach at Cerebris is certainly, it feels unconventional compared to much of what's going on in the AI accelerator landscape. And there's a really great blog series on this by Adi Fuchs kind of looking at the at the whole landscape of AI accelerators. And he also felt like what Cerebris is doing feels like a pretty daring challenge. And that in the engineering perspective, there's a lot of uncharted territory you all are wading into here with larger chips, just meaning higher probabilities for, you know, core and processor defects, that sort of thing. And so it sounds like you've really had to tackle a lot of engineering challenges that are kind of unique to what you're doing. Could you tell me a little bit about what that looks like for Cerebris? Yeah, I I think first, we're only interested in solving problems worth solving. And being 15% faster or slower than a GPU and cheaper, like some of the accelerators, that's not a very interesting proposition. And that's not the foundation on which great companies are built. Um, If you want to do something vastly better, faster, cheaper, you can't look like them. They have sucked down all the opportunity near them to do better. They're not dopes. They're exceptional engineers. And so you have to, and this is across the board, in startups, you have to do something exceptional. And our approach to solve the problem of wafer scale so that we move bits in femtojoules and they move them in picojoules. <laughs> so we're moving right at a fraction of the power so that we can keep memory close to compute one cycle where there are hundreds or thousands of cycles away from their memory, where we can put thousands of times more memory on a chip than, than the GPU can. Where we can, We're not interested in, oh, look, we, we have 30% more. That, that, that's not going to be the heart of a great company. To do that, you have to solve really hard problems, and you can't be afraid of it. And you need engineers, and you need financial backers who love hard problems. You know, Sam Altman had a great saying. He said, the only thing that's not hard about hard startups is recruiting. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that dude is smart. And that's right, is that people are attracted, the right type of people are attracted when you say in the 70-year history of compute, nobody solved this problem. And then we go out, we solve it. You know, when we yielded our first part, TSMC, the largest fab in the world and our partner, built an exhibit in their Museum of Innovation and put us in it. Computer History Museum inducted our part into the museum, right? None of the other accelerators, because they're not very interested. I mean, they're not, they're things, they might be good implementations of known approaches. And uh, that's not what, what we're interested in. Now, when you build race car engines like we do, you don't want to put them in a Volkswagen. So you, you, you and we we knew that the high performance edge of this market would require you to build whole systems. Some of the competitors thought they could do it with a PCI plugin. That's never worked and was obvious that it wouldn't work. You you can't build a performance part and drop it into a, a Dell server and be constrained by their I.O. and their power and their cooling. And that's not how it works. So we built a whole system. And as a result, we could do interesting things on the system level. We could bring in more I.O. We could, because we have so much compute, we could use more efficient cooling. And as a result, we could run our chips at lower temperature, extending their life beyond what anybody can do if you just use air cooling. And so at every stage, we were willing to make hard trade-offs and we think of ourselves as a system company. That includes the software, you have to build a compiler. And you know we have nearly 300 compiler engineers. And I, I think that's not an easy journey either, but we knew that from the start. And, and as a result, any, Py, any sort of PyTorch or TensorFlow written for a GPU, we can compile. There's no sneaker net. There's no manual lowering as some of the other accelerators are forced to do. Easy as can be. Existing workflows. You know, we can. you want to configure GPT-3 off a laptop in a Jupyter notebook? We do that. <laughs> right? Nobody can do that. Yeah. In line with that, you had a pretty recent announcement about GPTJ and that working on a Cerebrus chip. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. We, we invented some technology. And what it did is it allowed us to store parameters off chip and to provide the performance as if it were on chip. And the the technique is called weight streaming. There was some early research done on it at Microsoft. We implemented it in hardware. And the result is the single system, one, can support, you know, GPT-XL at a billion three, GPT-J at six billion, NEO at 20. It can support the the Clova uh, at 30, at 87, at 173, or 83, at 170, and at 175, a single system. Now, you can say, well, look, you know, how, how can one system be useful? Well, one system quickly trains up to 20 billion parameters. But many times you're trying to do research. So you're looking at a layer or part of a layer, and you don't need 
a huge cluster. And if you consume a huge cluster to look at a layer, it's unbelievably wasteful. And so what we announced was this technology that allowed us to, to scale even on a single system. And then we announced a sister technology called SwarmX that allowed us to, to build fabrics that broadcast the parameters to clusters of CS2 and on reduce the gradients on the way back. And so these clusters run strictly data parallel and provide perfect linear scaling. So you begin with one CS2 running on, say, GPTJ. It is exactly half the time to add another one. You add a second, time to train is cut in half. You add three, time to train is a quarter. You add seven, time to train is an eighth. Nobody can do that. So uh, what we were able to do is uh, provide a technique to support models of arbitrarily large size, including trillions of parameters, tens of trillions of parameters, hundreds of trillions of parameters, by separating the memory, the storage of parameters from the compute. And then by doing compute in the fabric, eliminating the latency associated with the separation. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's it's called our, our, our memory X technology and our swarm X fabric. And uh, those are in together sort of wafer scale clusters. Yeah. I want to linger on the weight streaming idea just for a second, because I suspect that for a lot of our listeners, they, they might be interested in just knowing a little bit about what that is. And my kind of understanding from reading through a lot of your posts has to do with, you've got all of your network activations that are kind of stored more or less off chip. That's and right. you can load them on the fly when you need to do the relevant forward and backward computations. It's something of that sort, right? That's exactly right. So the, the way you, the way this works is uh, on chip, you're going to do the forward pass. You're going to store the activations. You're going to do the backward pass. You're going to store the activations. You're going to stream the gradient back. In the uh, memory X, you're going to do the update. And you're going to stream the new weights through the broadcast fabric back to the, uh, the CS2s where you rinse and repeat. All right. So... What's interesting about this is the two types of pipelining you can do. You can straight up stream the per, the param the weights. All right, so those are streaming in. You're doing the forward pass. You do the backward pass. All the activations remain on chip, and then on layer one of the back pass, right you begin streaming the gradient out before it's finished being calculated. You can vectorize it and stream it out. And so you get to the memory X and that update, right, begins happening before the final calculation is completed. And that's what's called fine-grained pipelining. 
And the result is the communication latency is completely hidden. And so the result is what you get is a layer by layer training with weights going in one direction, gradients going the other. As they go through the fabric from the multiple CS2s, they're reduced. A single vector is delivered to the optimizer, which is in the memory X. The calculations start. New weights are calculated and begin streaming even before the final gradient vector is completed. And so th this is a, a pipelining technique known well in, in computer architecture. And so that allowed us to basically cram a huge amount of off-chip memory into a memory X with some very careful hardware design, huge amounts of IO bandwidth, and very nifty pipelining software to enable us to give you near infinite parameter size. Pretty cool, huh? Very. <laughs> While we're on all this, let's talk about a couple more of the announcements Cerebrus has had recently before I get your thoughts on the broader landscape and I think a lot of what's been going on in this recently. You announced some recent performance results with GSK. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? You know, we, we've had super success in Big Pharma. They, uh, they have the most interesting data, right? Th their data isn't the exhaust of another business, right? They spend billions of dollars generating their data sets. And so uh, they are extremely interested in finding insight in this data. And so working with uh, GSK, we used a version of BERT called eBERT, and we used it on a genetic sequence instead of a language. And we were examining epigenomic targets. Now, genes are a really interesting to, thing to study because A, they're a language, and B, their context matters, just like words in a language matters. Right, And that's this rise of, of control genes and epigenomic phenomenon, where it's not a, a mechanical process where a gene always does the same thing. It's regulated by things around it. Now, that's exactly what we do in large language models, where you have a, a window, a sequence length, in which you are using context to understand meaning. What Galaxo showed was that our system was uh, for work they used to do on a 16-node GPU cluster in 20 days, we did in about two days. And what they said was that that speed enables you to test things that you'd never been able to test before. Taking 25 days on a 16-node cluster is too long to ask many interesting questions. Sure. And that, we were so proud of that. That's why we started the company. When you build hardware, you want other people's ideas to take flight on your hardware. And that, that, that is why you're a hardware builder. You build infrastructure so other people can, can drive on it to amazing new places. And the exact same thing happened. They published those results. The same thing happened at Total Energies, 
where uh, for their workload, we were 228 times faster than GPUs. And they published those results. And so what we're seeing is extraordinary speed ups um, and uh, opening doors for uh, new uh, techniques. I mean, we're doing more work in, in the life sciences, looking at very, very large sequence lengths, maybe where you're able to hold um, entire fractions of, of a genome in, in the, the sequence window. Uh, at a time, uh, we are uh, doing all sorts of interesting work, both in, in pharma and oil and gas. and So lots of interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem like one of the really big benefits that AI accelerators are bringing to the landscape is kind of returning us to that point that a lot of people were very excited about with AI, which is just that you can prototype ideas and iterate on them so quickly. You can really do science at a very fast speed. And with that massive growth in model size, it definitely feels like something that's been lost a little bit. One thing I'd love to know about your collaborations and all these results is these are really incredible results, but it's also not easy work, as I as you definitely know. And I'm curious about some of, of the challenges you and the team faced no, I, I think uh, some of the, the challenges are are the mindset. You know, NVIDIA is a beast and, and everybody's learned their, their AI on NVIDIA. And I, I think at the same time, nobody likes to write in CUDA. Uh, everybody wants to write in PyTorch, TensorFlow. I think, you know, you, you arrive with a much faster engine, but early in your life, there's some burrs. Right, it's not as mature, and for your first customers, and those were our customers in two, 2020, you know that that to, to hang with you as you sort of filed off those burrs, and as your software matured, and you know, and, and now, you know, if if you want to run GPT three, um, we can set you up with our infrastructure. You you, you can run that uh, over our, our our customer cloud. You can do that. You know, if you want a demo, we can set you up in a day or two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and th th that has overcome a, a huge amount of the, the traditional resistance. But for any startup, you know, when you first get to market, and we first got to market late 2019, early 2020, um, you need to find some patient customers. You need to find some customers who have vision and who want to bet on your trajectory, not just on where you are today. And so, you know, those customers... All of them, every single one has upgraded from our CS1 to our CS2, from the 16 nanometer wafer scale engine to the 7 nanometer wafer scale engine. They're, the model sizes they're working with are 10 or 50 times larger than they were working with a year and a half ago. Um, and so they, they've already seen the benefit of the trajectory. And, and that, that's something that uh, mature technologies like GPUs, you're going to get exactly what the fab gives you. <laughs> You're going to go from seven to five or four to three, right? You, you get it one and a half X. It's going to be unbalanced. I mean, you can, you know exactly what the trajectory is. And we're trying to get you a hundred X with our next system, not, not two. Mm. So 
One other thing I'd love to know about, and this can maybe be our segue towards some broader thoughts on the ecosystem, is one interesting thing that I noticed you said in an article was that Cerebrus did not spend one minute working on MLPerf, which I thought was very interesting because I had a bit of a gripe session with Sarah Hooker a little while back on MLPerf. I'm not the biggest fan of it and spent some time talking about that. And I'd love to know your thoughts about this. Benchmarks are immediately gamed by the largest companies. Now, that's not a game startups should spend time on. If you're going to dedicate 40 engineers, $30 million worth of gear for nine months for hyperparameter tuning, you're going to take 20 kernel engineers, you're going to fuse kernels to, to make uh, a configuration that is unbelievably fragile. To pretend that's what customers want, that's, that's useless. That's just a game test. That's not helpful. Sure. And uh, that's what's done. Um, and if you look carefully at the, uh, the results, hyperparameter tuning up the wazoo, fusing of models, all sorts of things that are the opposite of what a customer wants. A customer wants to be able to change quickly. Right, they they don't want fused kernels. They want to be able to change a layer. They, they want to be change a learning rate. They want to be able to change a, a loss function. They want to. I mean, they want to do work. And so, what happens is, is once you set up a benchmark, you set up a drag race. But the actual thing you want to test is what's it like to go to the grocery store? What's it like? What's it like to visit grandma? And so what you get is tuning, and these cars look more and more like those funny cars in drag racing. What the hell is that? You get something designed to go a quarter mile. That's it. Only one thing. And so as a startup, you can say, do I want to play in this game where the biggest guys are gaming the system relentlessly, are doing everything that is against what your customers want? in order to bang their chests, or do you want to work with your customers and show real performance against what your customers have? They have GPUs. Nobody is getting the performance claimed at MLPerf in the field. Th that was our thinking. Um, it remains our thinking. I think uh, it is very hard to build an honest test and not have it gamed. And it would probably be several tests for the same code, right? If you thought about how would you construct an honest test, you might have it do multiple things so you couldn't game it. But just asking who has the most time to fuse kernels for BERT, a large, and spend the most time hyperparameter tuning, that doesn't seem like a very good test of what customers really want. What were your thoughts? Sure. Yeah, I I definitely had some shared thoughts about this, just the fact that there's a bit of an incentive to over-engineer to the test as opposed to trying to solve the general problem. And that does seem to arise in AI quite a bit. Yeah, look, and it's not we saw the same thing in spec and spec int in, in the compute space. The measurement of performance is a very hard problem. 
And uh, the minute you boil it down to one item, you begin bending the, uh, the machine to that one item. You give it absurd memory configurations that nobody would ever buy. You, you make your, your software extremely tightly integrated, fragile as can be, hand-tuned. That, that's not what real customers use. And so it's a, it's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But even so, I mean, if you look at the, the, the ML perf data, that's, if you take that as the best that NVIDIA can do pulling out all stops, I mean, look how bizarrely nonlinear they scale. I mean, it, the, the, they're scaling the penalty of adding GPUs to a cluster is extraordinary. And uh, if you look at what linear scaling would be versus what, what they get when you add 20, 30, 50, 100 GP, it's, you know, they're getting a tiny fraction of that. And that's where the, the, the complaints around power draw come from. I mean, you have all this compute, but as you try and use a thousand of them together, you're only getting a tiny fraction of their utilization, but they're all pulling power. Sure. On this, on this segue, I suppose, now that we're talking about some of the larger scale issues within the accelerator community, there's, I think, a lot to talk about just with respect to what's going on in the ecosystem overall. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts here. So for one, I find the, the venture ecosystem around the space pretty interesting. There was an April report this year that said venture funding for chip startups has doubled in the past five years. And a business like Cerebrus, like Graphcore, like any of the other accelerator startups out there is going to be time and talent and capital intensive. But it doesn't seem to be dissuading investors as much these past few years. Of course, the uh, recent events we've been seeing in the stock market and all that being a whole nother deal. But I'd love to know a bit about your experience with that landscape. What? I've been looking at that landscape now for 25 years. And a, a couple things happened between about 2000 and, and 2012 or 14. And, and that's that there was no investment in hardware. And uh, with the rise of VMware and the success of containers and of uh, VMs, uh, and uh, what happened what was at that time, the software workload was too small for the, the CPU. And so all the ton of venture money and a, and a ton of successful outcomes came around not building new dedicated hardware, but it came around breaking up existing hardware into smaller pieces. And that's what a VM does. I mean, it, it and... You know, in 2007, I raised a Series A for, for C-Micro, and we were sort of one of three hardware companies funded that year. Now, whenever that happens, there's a correction. <laughs> and by 2013 or 14, uh, there were new workloads that could be accelerated dramatically by dedicated hardware. And um, there was a... Uh, a generation of VCs who had missed it, who had come out of software, who didn't know hardware. And there emerged a new group of VCs who, uh, who knew hardware really well, who were interested in robotics, who were interested in 
in dedicated compute, application-specific compute. And starting in 2014, 2015, you saw sort of a a new set of, of investments arise. You saw companies building drones, which is a hardware product. You saw companies building all sorts of new hardware. And among them were accelerators. Whenever you have the rise of a new workload that fits poorly in the landscape, and AI fits poorly in the compute landscape, the, the status quo landscape, there's an opportunity for new hardware to accelerate. And that's what we saw in late 2015. I mean, the guys at Nirvana probably saw it first in late 2014. Um, and others had jumped in. It is interesting to note that of the, the 40 or 50 different companies that have jumped in, most of them have jumped in on the, on the inference side, but n- none of them have used a GPU architecture. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting shift that you mentioned there. I know within the VC world, there had definitely been a bit of that sentiment, the whole software is eating the world mantra. And after some time, you realize, well, the type of software we're trying to build, of course, needs hardware that's going to match it. And I think there's a really interesting interplay between those two things. So I'd mentioned my conversation with Sarah Hooker earlier, and one of the other things that we spoke about was her essay, The Hardware Lottery, which I think is kind of relevant to this conversation, just because of the idea that there certainly is this back and forth between in the AI space for researchers, the types of ideas that succeed, and then what sorts of software the hardware, the underlying hardware is suited to run. And one thing that makes me happy to see this accelerator landscape really flourishing is just that the expanse of new ideas we're going to see out there might help enable different sorts of workloads, different sorts of ideas, and hopefully eventually some can win on their own merit as opposed to, well, we just have GPUs and so we need massive parallelization. But I'm curious if you've thought about that sort of broader perspective as well. We've thought about it a lot. Let's take let's take something like sparsity. Mm-hmm. Works very poorly on a GPU. Right? If you want weight sparsity, if you want dynamic weight sparsity, if you want, uh, it, it, it breaks a GPU because it's a dense machine. Everything about that machine was designed for graphics, and everything about graphics is a dense matrix multiply. Um, if you want to study sparsity, and we know that these big neural networks, big language networks, can withstand a ton of sparsity, it might even benefit from it, you can't do it on a GPU. Our machine can. Sparsity, turns out, is ext- puts a great deal of pressure on memory bandwidth. And... You know, when you have uh, 10,000x the memory bandwidth of a GPU, suddenly you can do new things. Like you can handle vector vector, scalar vector, x plus y, right? At the very basic level of your calculations. And so you can avoid multiplying by zero. And I think there's a huge amount of interesting work to be done in sparsity. And it, it gets right at the heart of a very important problem, which is how do we use our flops more effectively, right? The purpose isn't 
to do a multiply if it doesn't move you towards accuracy. And multiplying by zero never moves you towards your accuracy goal, right? And so what can we do? What are the algorithmic things we can do, whether it's efficient batch size, whether it's variable compute, right? Do do you have to show each activation all the parameters? Um, Does your matrix multiply always have to be equal shaped matrices? What if you had odd shaped matrices? Right. These are all things that that um, are made possible by more interesting compute possibilities like ours and others. Yeah. Now, another another aspect of this discussion I'd love to get your thoughts on is on July 27th, we saw Congress pass the Chips and Science Act to spend two hundred eighty billion dollars, I believe that was focused on boosting the U.S.'s scientific research and advanced semiconductor manufacturing capacity. And of course, a lot of this is sort of couched in the language of U.S. competitiveness, which I think is an interesting and very different discussion on its own. But there's definitely a call out there about semiconductor manufacturing, which is exactly the space you're in. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what this political attention means for you as somebody trying to build AI accelerators and for the rest of the landscape as well. And you could marry that to the government's recent action limiting NVIDIA's ability to sell chips in China. Yes, yes. Right. I, look, the, the U.S. government made an egregious industrial strategy error 15 years ago in, when it failed to protect its domestic fab industry. And as a result, there are only two places to get chips manufactured if you want to be at an aggressive geometry. And one is in Taiwan, and the other is outside of Seoul with uh, Samsung. So you're either at TSMC or you're at Samsung. That's it. With that, and we used to have fabs at aggressive geometries in the U.S. We used to have them... In upstate New York, we used to have them in many places. With that sort of departure, we also lost the packaging technologies that are part of that ecosystem. And they all went, and if you go to TSMC's factory and Fab 14 or 15, right across the street is ASE and and Amcor and all the great packaging, Kyocera, all the packaging companies. So we lost that as well. Now, we do our own packaging. We're the only company that does our own packaging. We do it in the U.S. It took inordinate effort to do that. It is a strategic asset for our company, for our country, excuse me, uh, that we be able to make chips at aggressive geometries in the U.S. and have an innovative ecosystem around that. I, I don't think we can leave that in in Asia. I think uh, we need a, a, a vibrant fab ecosystem uh, in the U.S. TSMC is the best in the world at it. We, we ought to have them in the U.S. building fabs. We, we ought to have Samsung in the U.S. building fabs. We ought to have packaging companies and we ought to support our packaging companies, especially with the saber rattling going on in, in Asia right now. Yeah. There are a lot of difficult questions around here, and that loss of domestic manufacturing capacity over time is definitely something I've been seeing 
more and more lamented lately. And there's a, a pretty recent article by Ben Thompson, who I think is just a really great analyst on this. I just kind of wanted to read a quotation from there, if you don't mind. I think that's kind of relevant to what you're saying here. He's, he's speaking about the CHIPS Act. He says, time will tell if the CHIPS Act achieves its intended goals. The final version did, as I hoped, explicitly limit investment by recipients in China, which is already leading chip makers to rethink their investments. That this is warping the chip market is, in fact, the point. The structure of technology drives inexorably towards the most economically efficient outcomes, but the ultimate end state will increasingly be a matter of politics. And that that last clause there, just that while we drive towards these, these efficient outcomes, politics is inevitably going to play a role in how things pan out is just really interesting, I think, as as somebody watching and for you, somebody participating in that market. As, look, the Chinese government's invested a huge amount of money in AI. It stood behind guaranteeing venture capital investments. They have very different rules on the gathering of information. Uh, they And you can see that not just in the companies that everybody thinks about that just hand over your chat data to the government, but also in their in their biology and genetics companies that have access to data that, that here in the West we consider private. Um, I, I think, you know, and it's had success. Companies like SenseTime are the best in the world at what they do. Um, and uh, I think just throwing money, well, I'll say this differently. Politics is a game in which big companies play well. And it, it rarely benefits small companies. It rarely benefits benefits innovation. And many were very concerned that this CHIPS Act would be an Intel bailout act. Intel's failed to, uh, to hit its goals. It's behind in its fab geometry. It's allowed in combination with excellent execution by Lisa and AMD to, to yield the, the, the high performance edge. We shouldn't be bailing out weak performance. That's not what we should be doing. But we do need fabs here. And it is an extraordinarily difficult thing politically to separate those who have the biggest lobbying budgets uh, from pork barrel politics. And these are really hard problems. And uh, what we can say for sure is that startups are no good at it. And we, 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 we don't have huge lobbying budgets. We're not having lunch with congressmen and senators or flying them on our planes. I mean, we're not doing the things that big companies do. And so thoughtful policy ha- has to emerge uh, sort of by accident, <laughs> right? Like, good policy has to be made and has to get through almost by accident, the political process. Yeah. And... It's, it's definitely an iteration cycle for policy, I've always felt. I think this is probably a good place for us to get to some closing thoughts here. I think maybe as my, my final question, this is perhaps a more, a more personal one to you, Andrew, just about your perspectives on solving hard problems. I think among the different startups you've had over the years, and now with Cerebrus, you've really thrown yourself at a lot, a lot of very difficult things. And so what I'd love for you to perhaps relate to our listeners is just how you think about 
steeling yourself against these difficult problems and what that process looks like for you? I think it's hard. And I think uh, there are no problems I'm interested in solving for which you know the answer or how to do it at the start. Those aren't interesting problems for me. We, we are not interested in a little bit better. We're not interested in, in, in using the, the, the tools we learned last time to make something a little bit different. We're interested in using our brains and engineering methodology, a belief that, that just because others couldn't do it, couldn't do it in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s doesn't mean we can't do it. And I, I think, you know, we, I, I am uh, attracted to a type of person that is only interested in problems that, that others are afraid to work on, that others shy away from. It is not easy. And the number of inventions, the number of patents, the number of uh, the amount of IP we've generated is, is unbelievable. The times in which we stared at a problem for months and months on end, tens of millions of dollars and couldn't solve it. But, you know, there, there are some people who like doing work without a safety net. And I can tell you that, that there's a feeling as you get close to breaking an important problem, you feel the problem quiver underneath the weight of extraordinary engineering execution. And you feel your team pulling together. And I've never rode crew. I've never been in a jazz band. But I imagine there's a feeling when all eight people in a crew are pulling together and your boat is flying over the water. Or in a jazz band where, where sometimes it's swinging. And together what you've created is awesome. And it's constructed th- through the collaboration. When a group of engineers are, are in this mode, it's magical. And it's, it's what I do this for. And uh, people talk about it for years and years in their career. It's rare. And if you can, as a CEO, create an environment where that can happen, where uh, people can achieve can sort of earn success. That, that for me is happiness. No, I, I, not everybody gets a trophy for trying. Not, but when you solve that problem, you know, when, when, when we got it working and the founders sat around in the lab and we watched a wafer scale machine run and in the 70 year history of compute, nobody had ever done it before. Not Amdahl, not the super smart guys at IBM in the late 60s, nobody. And 48 guys in bad real estate in Los Altos, we did it. And that's magical. And that's sort of, those are our Everests, right? Those are our things that it's worth doing. That, that's the way I would describe it. Those are the people we want to work with. And... We know there are lots of others that are great engineers, and, and, but if, if that's what the way your passions go, that, that's, that's for us.
Thanks for that perspective, Andrew. I, I really enjoyed listening to what you had to say. And you and Cerebrus are working on some really fascinating problems. I am excited to see how how things develop with both the space and your company in particular. And I also just want to thank you for spending so much time chatting with me today. What a fun conversation. Um, what a pleasure. Uh, happy to talk anytime. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.